Cast Ball Show, brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f- f- put that in. I don't. So the tribe drops its third straight on this trip, six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. I'm talking about the past, I'm talking about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I wouldn't know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going to the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball and from the baseball angle. I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this, he sucks. Well, he's out. He's out. He's out. He's out. He's out. Look, look, look at this. Randy is out. And uh, Dean is mad. I'm not here to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. It's been run cleaner than any baseball business ever put out in the hundred years of the present time. Sell the team. Oh, yes. Welcome to the Past Ball Show right here on the MTR Radio Network. Of course, this is John Pielli. I'll put you till about 12 o'clock today. Hope you guys are enjoying your Saturday mornings with me. And right to get things started, we're going to speak with former Major League pitcher Brett Saberhig and, of course, the two-time Cy Young Award winner in 1985 and 1989, World Series champion with the Kansas City Royals in 1985, and, of course, he pitched for the Mets from 92 to 95 and, of course, had a 14-4 and season and a strike-shortened 1994 season. Became the comeback player of the year in 1998 with the Boston Red Sox after undergoing a major shoulder operation and, honestly, a guy that won 167 games in his career and was considered one of the better pitchers of the 1980s. So listen to my previously recorded interview with Brett Saberhagen. We'll be back with a lot more stuff going on. Pass ball show. Hi, right, man. This is John Pielli, former Major League pitcher Brett Saberhagen. What's going on, Brett? Oh, nothing. Just enjoying the afternoon. Nah, I hear you, man. The weather good over in California? It's uh, a little cloudy, but it's been very warm. So uh, actually, I yeah, missed all the hot weather this week because I was in uh, Cleveland doing a charity event for a good buddy of mine, uh, the, the Lunga that I've been to the last six or seven years. So uh, um, it's supposed to be Nah, you absolutely can. I mean, especially over here, we're getting a lot of rain over in uh, the East Coast now. Yeah, I've been seeing that. <laughs> hey, so uh, yeah, you still still involved with the West Coast Sports Management? No, I gave up pitching gig about uh, three years ago. Um, wasn't my cup of tea, um, but uh, yeah, so now I'm uh, not doing anything. Uh, retired again until something comes along that uh, tickles me. No, listen, you got to get into what you can get into. But of course, Brett, you had, you had a fabulous uh, career, a couple Cy Young Award winners. Um, tell us a little bit about the beginning, your years with the Royals early on. Um, just uh, very fortunate to be with the right team at the right time. Uh, Pitching-wise, uh, they needed some pitching, and uh, at the time, Dick Hauser made uh, made a little youth movement with uh, Mark Gubazal, myself, Danny Jackson, 
um, gave us a chance, and uh, uh, we ended up sticking for uh, for many years. Um, so, uh, just great times in the Kansas City Royals, or, Royals organization back in the, the mid mid eighties. Um, some good teams, uh, playoff teams, and a world championship in nineteen eighty five. So, great memories back then. Yeah, I tell you, and you get into nineteen eighty five, which obviously was a great year for the Royals franchise. Uh, you know, their one World Series championship that they have, and I'm sure the the city and the fans, everybody everybody cherished that. Tell us a little bit about that season, how everything worked out for you. Of course, the Royals made the playoffs in 1984, losing to the Tigers in the ALCS. But you know, what what was what was so great about that team that allowed everything to click that season? Of course, culminating with the with the win over the Cardinals. Well, um, being down three games to one against Toronto in the American League Championship Series, I think made it uh, uh, a little more easier for us after we went down three to one against the Cardinals to come back and uh, sweep, uh, win, uh, win that series, not sweep the series, but end up winning game seven. Um, it's just uh, a good bunch of guys that uh, played play the game the right way. And I think uh, having the experience from the year before, we had a lot of the same nucleus of guys from 1984 that uh, we lost to the Tigers. And uh, a lot of the same guys uh, on that uh, 1985 team. And so we went through it once and uh, we felt pretty comfortable. Yeah, no question about it. Once again, this is John Pielli. I'm here with Brett Saberhagen, and I'm, I'm sure you get this a lot. Anybody ever get on you about the, uh, you know, the Denkinger call? Um, oh, you hear about it quite a bit, but uh, and they actually see it on ESPN every once in a while. But, um, you know, yeah, it's, uh, it happens. I've been on the other end of those uh, in the playoffs when I was with the Red Sox with a few uh, less uh, favorable calls. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, they're not perfect. I mean, I think you saw that perfect game that was messed up uh, not too long ago I, um, at first base, the last out of the game. So, uh, they, uh, they make those mistakes from time to time. Yeah, and the truth is, sometimes it works for you, sometimes it works against you, man. You just gotta you gotta deal with the breaks, you know. And now one, one thing that's also very interesting, and obviously I'm sure you've been asked this a couple times too, um, over the course of the first eight years of your career, it seemed like, you know, in spite of 84, which was a good season for you as a rookie, you established yourself as a starting pitcher, it seemed like the odd years kind of worked for you for a little while, up until about 1991. Uh, what, what's the thought really be behind that? I mean, I'm, I'm sure you've thought about it at least at one point. You know, a season's really good, season doesn't work out so well, next season's really good, next season isn't really so well. Uh, I think a lot of it had to do um, with uh, uh, throwing a lot of innings and just uh, having some injuries the following year. I think at an early age, you know, 21 years old, I had 260 innings in um, that particular year. And it seemed like I was uh, accumulating a lot of innings um, at a young age. So uh, I think the, uh, the even number of years I did have uh, some, uh, some injuries and the odd number of years I, uh, I stayed pretty healthy. Yeah, now, of course, you end up being traded to the New York Mets along with Keith, uh, with uh, Bill Picota in exchange for uh, Greg Jeffries, Kevin McReynolds, and Keith Miller after the 91 season. Uh, tell us about, you know, first, your first uh, opinions of coming to New York and then about your little time with the New York Mets. Um, I love my time with the Mets. I never thought I was going to be traded for the Royals. Uh, uh, unfortunately for, uh, for those Mets teams that I played on, uh, um, we never really got together, I think, uh, between uh, all the nucleus of guys that we had there. And we had some great, great players, um, some good trades that came in. Um, nobody ever really uh, stepped up to the plate, so to speak, and, and uh, did what they were, were capable of doing. So um, you know, some injuries happened, uh, some off years, um, 
so we just never really gelled as a team, uh, unfortunately, to, uh, to uh, be in the spotlight there. So uh, it was unfortunate, and uh, it's, uh, it's, you look back on it, you always say, wish it could have been a little different, um, but uh, I enjoyed my years there. No, absolutely, and I'll tell you, 1994 wasn't that bad. I mean, you 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 had one of your best seasons, the 14 and four season, and you never know really what happens with the strike. I mean, the Mets were only a couple games under 500 that season. I mean, you know, you look at the '94 team. I mean, that that's a team that that really that really could have chased for something that year. Yeah, we you know, I had a, I had a pretty good year that year, but uh, yeah, again, um, you know, there was no World Series in 1994, and uh, there was no playoffs, so. Would have, could have, should have, you know, that type of deal. But, um, you know, uh, yeah, we just uh, unfortunately uh, didn't have great years as uh, as a whole. You know, it might have been one guy here, one guy there, but we never put it together as a team. Yeah, and once again, it's John Pielli. I'm here with Brett Saberhagen now. In 95, of course, you end up with the with the Rockies. You know, the Mets trade you to the Colorado. You end up making a postseason that year. Tell us a little bit about the experience pitching in a postseason for the Rockies because for the Rockies, it was pretty big for them. That was their, their first postseason appearance. It was great um, going over. I was... Uh I was going to get traded for the Mets again, um, but um, not again, but uh, being traded again for the second time, uh, you just don't uh, foresee that happening. Uh, but anyways, I went over there and I pitched in three games, threw pretty well, and then uh, after the third game, I went to warm up uh, the next day, just play some catch in the outfield, and that's when I hurt my shoulder for the first time. Need to have uh, a couple surgeries before I came back after after that uh, that season. Uh, playoffs were great, but it was it was hard and disappointing for me because um, I wanted to uh, to help that team when we lost the Braves. Um, but Bill Swift and myself were both uh, pretty banged up, and like I said, I needed to have surgery on my shoulder that year after it was over with. So, uh, love playing in front of 50,000 every day. It was a great stadium, a great time, but uh, again, it was kind of the, the downfall of uh, my shoulder, and um, uh, it never was the same after that. I got a few years in, but uh, it wasn't ever the same. Yeah, now I have to ask you. Of course, you end up having the operations. Of course, you miss, you know, you missed the whole season. I think in '97, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and then you come back with the uh, with, with the Red Sox. Was there a little bit of fulfillment as far as being out there, being able to compete again? Something that I'm sure you had a little bit of doubts once you had to undergo the operations. Yeah, I missed all '96. Missed a good portion of '97. Finally, pitched. I think came back in August and threw a couple of games. And, uh, in 97 and then um, 98 was a, a good year I uh, was able to get out and I was healthy for the most part um, pitched uh, 99 for the Red Sox again and um, towards the end of that year my uh, arm was banged up again and I uh, had to have surgery that off season and uh, missed all 2000 and I uh, came back and pitched three games in 2001 with the Red Sox and it just it, it wasn't working anymore so I uh, ended up uh having to uh, uh, call, it, uh, call it a career. It was uh, something where I, uh, I wasn't out on the field enough with my teammates, um, and it hurt. Um, I spent more time in the uh, training room than anywhere else, and uh, uh, just decided that it was, uh, it was time to hang up the spikes. No, listen, and that happens to everybody. You obviously had a very good career, you know, winning hundred you know, hundred sixty some games. Now, you know, as you as you watch, as you go through forward, you you come up in a time where obviously pitching was a lot different than it became towards the end of your career. I mean you were you were trusted as well as just about anybody on uh, on your staff to go out there and throw seven, 
eight, nine innings. Um, towards the end of your career, you see, I mean, the complete game, you know, still exists, but it wasn't really what it was even about 10 years ago. T- tell us a little bit about your thoughts about that. Do you, you obviously would probably want to be the guy that's trusted to go out there and pitch nine innings. But, you know, as, as time goes on, how did, how did you feel about the role of a starting pitcher changing? Um, well, you know, I, I still wanted to, uh, to go out there. And it, uh, yeah, it became a part of uh, my game after my surgeries that, uh, you know, I wasn't able to go nine innings. I think I might have had one complete game after uh, having my surgeries. And, uh, you know, I was more of a, a six to seven inning guy, uh, sometimes maybe eight. But um, uh, the wear and tear on my shoulder after uh, uh, my surgeries just wasn't able to go out there and, and be that pitcher that I was uh, prior to that, unfortunately, and that's something I took a lot of pride in was um, finishing uh, finishing off the game. I, uh, I wanted to get that bullpen rest, and I like being that guy that uh, you know they can count on to, uh, if it was a losing streak, if it was, uh, uh, you know, the bullpen guys being worn out and needed a, a rest, uh, to really go out and finish off the game. So the game's changed um, quite a bit in that aspect now. Um, I think I probably would fit in pretty good right now with the way uh, the starting pitchers go at times. But you see guys get get protected a lot more, which is good, I think, for, uh, for, for, for the younger players. Once you get to a certain age, I don't think you need to protect them anymore. But like I said, I threw a lot of innings at an early age and probably had some of uh, uh, the effect of uh, my shoulder. Yeah, no question about it. But listen, I want to thank you for having some time today, man. And uh, listen, best of luck to you and what you're doing. All right. Thanks, John. And that, of course, was Brett Saberhagen, phenomenal pitcher in the 1980s, obviously a household name. Uh, one of the guys that I think should eventually get his number retired by the Kansas City Royals. The run that he had towards the, the better part of the 1980s was phenomenal. And one thing that I really got out of it that kind of intrigued me and kind of drew my interest was really the shoulder operation that he had, obviously, in the 19, I believe it was the 1996 season. He missed the rest of that season. And, of course, it took him on into the 1997 season where he missed the whole year. Obviously, comeback player of the year with the Red Sox in 1998. But it seemed like it was something that I think he wanted to hold off as long as he could. And then he realized once his shoulder had deteriorated to that point that, uh, you know, he probably wasn't going to be the same pitcher after that. But, uh, you know, a a good story of a great pitcher. And obviously, I hope you guys enjoyed that. So we're going to take our first break of the day. We'll be back a lot more stuff going on. Passball show, johnpiele.com. Follow me at john underscore pielli back after this i'm karen siaska zeltman from italian hour when my car needs service i take it to jonathan's complete car care jonathan's complete car care is the best for auto repairs tires diagnostics and tune-ups you can depend on jonathan's for the best service at prices you can afford give jonathan's complete car care a call 609-601-6460 they work hard to give you the service you need Jonathan's Complete Car Care works with many vehicles, including Mercedes-Benz, BMW, Volvo, Volkswagen, and Audi. Make Jonathan's Complete Car Care the company you keep. 609-601-6460. Call today for a free estimate or visit. Find us on the web at jonathanscompletecarcare.com and like us on Facebook and find us on Twitter. Listening to MTR Radio, powered by MTRmedia.com. I'm Ron Sulpizi from the MTR Sports Report. 
Not sure where to eat? Then listen to these reviews. Awesome. Amazing Greek food. Everything is fresh. Great family restaurant in the heart of Ocean City. Katina's is an Ocean City staple. When you've had your fill of pizza, cheesesteaks, and ice cream, head for Katina's. Katina's Gyro Restaurant, 501 East 9th Street, Ocean City, New Jersey, 609-399-5525. Check out their website, katinasfoods.com. That's katinasfoods.com. Order their famous Mediterranean dressing, and they'll ship it right to your door. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, Katina's Greek Restaurant. In your face, all over the place. We're online 24-7-24-7. You're listening to the hottest internet station. M-T-R. Welcome back, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. We're going to get into uh, what I really found to be a very interesting, fascinating, and informative interview that I recorded this week with uh, President of the Negro Leagues Museum, and that, of course, is Bob Kendrick. And, you know, we really get into a lot of stuff talking about the history of the Negro Leagues, the Negro Leagues Museum, which, of course, is in Kansas City. So, uh, you know, listen up. It's a nice interview. We get into a lot of different things. And, uh, you know, once again, thanks, Bob, for having some time. So here it is, the interview with Bob Kendrick, president of Negro Leagues Museum. Hey, this is John Pielli. I'm here with uh, president of the Negro Leagues Museum, Bob Kendrick. Bob, what's going on, buddy? Oh, John, man, doing great. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Yeah, no question about it. There's a lot, a lot of definite interesting things that I want to get into because I think uh, you know what, what you've done and what the museum has done over the years. I think is phenomenal. It's, it's definitely bringing a lot of, a lot of history back into what, honestly, there's still so many people I don't really know about all the great things that happened with the Negro Leagues and the Negro Leagues players. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's an evolving history, and it's, for most of the people who come to see us, it's a brand new history because. You're right. Uh, we, we really never had an opportunity to learn about the Negro League during our formal education. And, and as a result, John, I think a lot of people who come here, number one, they are amazed at what they are witnessing and experiencing. They are somewhat dismayed by the fact that they just now had an opportunity to learn this. Me questioning, why didn't I know this when I was in school? Why isn't this a part of the American history books? And, and so as an institution, it is our job to eventually rewrite the pages of American history books to include this wonderful chapter of baseball and Americana. Yeah, no question about it. And I'll tell you, obviously, you, you know the, the history of the Negro Leagues, which actually um, can be traced really back to, uh, what, the early part of the 1900s, which, you know, you, you obviously the, the unfortunate things that did not allow African-American players to play in the major leagues. But before we get into that, I, a couple a couple interesting things that I you know I was able to, to, to notice. In the late 1800s, you know, Moses Fleetwood Walker, 
uh, Bud Fowler, a couple a couple African American players actually had the opportunity to play in major in Major League Baseball. Of course, by the time the turn of the century hit, you know, with the Jim Crow laws and everything, they they were not allowed to play anymore. But was there, in your opinion, or from what you know, was there was there any any um, any any interest in the fact that these players did get a chance to play before the turn of the 19, uh, 1900s? Well, you know, and, and even when we reference guys like Moses Fleetwood Walker, I will always preference them by saying the first you know, known black to play on white professional team, a Bud Fowler, uh, because that may have been great probability and possibility that very light-skinned uh, African-Americans who could have passed as white may have played on some teams. And, uh, you know, and so it, it, it was really just the, the conditions of our times that prevented these guys. You know, Moses Fleetwood Walker's playing in the late 1800s, and, you know, guys like Kath Anson and others, and, and Anson was an outstanding baseball player. Yes, it was. Uh, essentially formed a gentleman's agreement that banned them from playing. That was nothing ever, ever written, really. You know, just a verbalized agreement amongst players, managers, and owners that essentially said, if you allow black to play with you, you can't play with us. Well, because Anson was so good, uh, it was pretty easy for him to build a coalition of followers. They were essentially saying, we're doing this for their own good. We don't want anything to happen to them. And, and as a result, that would ban blacks for the next six decades, essentially, until Jackie Robinson breaks the color barrier in what we now deem to be the modern era of Major League Baseball. No, absolutely. And once again, this is John Pielli. I'm here with the Negro Leagues Museum president, Bob Kendrick. Now, I mean, this this might be just a question that intrigues me, and maybe maybe this isn't the greatest question to ask, but uh, I mean, I, I, always, I always found it interesting that some, you know, the, depending on, you know, your skin color, you know, you're, you're considered, you know, African-American. What, in your opinion, is the is the division? You know, you talk about like, you know, slightly dark skin, a little darker than white, you know, like, I mean, I mean, I, I mean, I never I never understood the whole thing. I'm, I've been always you know, I've, I've been in this guy that's always like, gag, we're kind of all the same. It, it, it's pretty amazing, actually, to think about it. And obviously, as we look at things in this day and age, it's just ridiculous to even fathom that, that our country was that way once upon a time. But, you know, truth of the matter is, John, if you were thought to be anything other than American-born black, you could get around in this country okay. And, and really, as a result, a lot of Negro League players who were of African-American descent would actually try to pass themselves off by speaking a broken down Spanish because it might enable them to get a meal in a town where otherwise they couldn't get a meal. Now, the darker-skinned Latin athletes really face that same kind of indignity and injustice that the the dark-skinned African-Americans or the African-Americans face in this country, but still not to that level in which it was for American-born blacks. So, you know, the, the irony of that is here were men and women who were as American as anyone being treated as un-American as anyone, so much so that you'd have to pass yourself off by being from another country just to get basic services in this country. But the thing that I admire about this story is the fact that they would not allow that level of social adversity to kill the love of a game of baseball. So now so be it. If I've got to sleep on the bus and eat my peanut butter and crackers, then so be it. 
but I'm going to keep playing ball. And, and that's that prevailing spirit that you get here when you visit the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. I tell our visitors all the time, the story itself is not about the adversity they face. It's about what they did to overcome the adversity. That's the real story. And I'll tell you, I mean, I, that's what interests me, too. I think, it's, I think it's phenomenal that in spite of all these obstacles, it was almost like they were told that they shouldn't be playing the game. Exactly. But, but you know, exactly. overcoming it with the fact that they just love it so much, they did everything they could to make this thing happen. Well, and, and they loved it, and they were good at it. You know, and that, so, that definitely helps. And, but, but, <laughs> but at the crux of this is what you just referred to, the love of the game. They absolutely loved this game. You had to love it in order to endure what they endured to play this game in this country. So, you know, I, and I tell our young professional athletes when they come here, it really doesn't matter what color you are. When you visit this museum, particularly as a baseball player, you will never see a, a greater example of love of the game than you do when you visit the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, that's located in Kansas City. And, you know, you obviously look at the, the way from really from 1990 when it was first created. It started in what, like a kind of like an office building? And then yeah, over the course of one room office space. Yeah, and then over the course of the next uh, several years, it's built, it's been built into what it really is now. Uh, you know, for the, for the listeners that may not know, describe the, New York, the Negro Leagues Museum and the, the way it's set up and, you know, really, really what, what you have to look forward to when you come out to Kansas City to see it. Well, it, it is a special place. It's a special place whose historical roots began in Kansas City. The Negro Leagues were formed in Kansas City in 1920. Ruth Foster led a contingent of eight independent black baseball team owners into Kansas City. They met here in 1920 at the old Purcell YMCA, just a block and a half from where the museum currently operates. And out of that meeting came the birth of the Negro National League, the first successful organized black baseball league. So it made perfectly good sense that a museum dedicated to the subject matter would be here in Kansas City in the exact same area in which the Negro Leagues were formed also was the birth of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And as you touched upon, we started in 1990 in a little one-room office space, and we've grown leaps and bounds since that time. Today, we offer a 10,000-square-foot state-of-the-art exhibition that is done to replicate an old ballpark. And so you literally walk into an old ballpark, and you come in, and the first thing you see is the baseball diamond, the field of legends. And the field of legends, John, features 10 life-size bronze sculptures of Negro League greats, and they're cast in position as if they were playing a game. They represent 10 of the first group of Negro Leaguers to be inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame at Cooperstown. So that's how our all-star team was chosen. Well, you see the field, but you can't get to it. And so we essentially segregate our visitors from the centerpiece of our exhibition. We hope that when you walk in, you see this incredible display and that you can't wait to get out there. But we kind of force you to learn their story, and then the very last thing that happens is you get to take the field. You're now being worthy to walk out on the field with 10 legendary uh, baseball players, some of the greatest baseball players to ever put on a baseball uniform. Along that journey, you through a wonderful collection of photographs, artifacts, great scripted pieces, multimedia displays, featured film projects. You kind of get a glimpse of what America was like and, again, the greatness of these players and how they overcame that adversity that we spoke about. Uh, when you get to the field, 
it is almost very, it's a very triumphant-like feeling. You know, you most of our visitors get it. And, and I've seen people move to tears when they walked out and walked among those uh, life-size bronze sculptures of great, you know, as they, you know, went to base to base and then they stared face to face with the legendary Josh Gibson or, you know, stood on the mound next to shoulder to shoulder with Satchel Paige or stood out in the outfield with Cool Papa Bell and Oscar Charleston and Leon Day. And, you know, it, it is such an awe-inspiring kind of experience. And I think people have just really been excited to learn this history and as baseball fans, you know, to learn about some new baseball heroes. Yeah, no question about it. Once again, John Piel, I'm here with uh, Negro Leagues Museum President Bob Kendrick. And, you know, we, was just, we were just talking about how, you know, the, the museum, the way it's set up, the field of field of legends, which I find phenomenal that, you know, you, you really have. Um, I guess when when this was all set up, what was the uh, and, and I like I don't know if you were part of it or or from from what you know. Uh, how are the top the, these players all determined as, as far as being worthy of the statues? Obviously, they'd all be worthy, but in, in addition, there's probably other players that were good at certain times. Oh yeah. So yeah. so yeah. how was how was it determined that let's say you know let's say a Pop Lloyd at second base, Ray Dandridge yeah. at third yeah. base, yeah. you know what was the determining factor and who really was worthy enough of the statues? Yeah, because you're absolutely right. Whatever ten we put on the field you could have made a case for another 10 group of 10 yes. to go on that field and you wouldn't have been wrong. You know, but so what we did was we tried to simplify the process by looking at when these guys went into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. So the statues all represent Negro League players who are currently enshrined in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. So that's how we formed that, that legendary team that makes up our field of legends. And, of course, the late, great Buck O'Neill is on the outside of that field looking in. He's managing this great all-star team that we've assembled. But, you know, yeah, you're right. It, it could have easily been another group of 10 that could have adorned that field. And, and you would have gotten no argument from folks who were knowledgeable about the Negro Leagues in terms of the greatness of those players as well. This was a great baseball league that gave some of the best African-American and Hispanic baseball players an opportunity to showcase their world-class baseball skills. So, you know, this was a tremendously talent-laden league. And you can see that even by those who got the opportunity to eventually cross over into the major leagues and the immediate impact that the Negro Leagues had on Major League Baseball. Yeah, no question about it. And I tell you what, what interests me too is that you know you eat ball. Another another part of uh, you know you know you could say that people were held back were women, but it seemed it seemed as if the Negro leagues were more or more you know allowing of women to play professional baseball than you know obviously you saw in uh, you know in Major League Baseball. And well, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, the Negro leagues were so far ahead of their time. And, you know, they were providing opportunities for women to do things in this country before this country was giving women an opportunity yes. to do things. There were three women who played professionally in the Negro Leagues in Tony Stone, Connie Morgan, and Mamie Peanut Johnson. Yes. And, of course, there was a female owner of a Negro League franchise in Ethel Manley who becomes the first woman to be nominated and inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame at Cooperstown. So women played a very pioneering role in the Negro Leagues. And so this was a very progressive, very innovative 
league uh, and, and, and certainly very marketing driven. They understood how to create a fan base for their product. Uh, and they did it in, in, you know, I think if we were doing case marketing case studies, you could look at how the Negro Leagues promoted themselves and, and generated their fan base. And, and I think it would be fascinating for young students who are looking at the marketing field now. They were light years ahead of their time. Now they definitely were. And I, t- I tell you, man, I mean, it just, it just, you know, from everything that happens as far as, you know, these players really just, just sticking it out and facing wh- whatever, whatever adversity is out there against them to just play the game they love. To me, that's yeah. what, that's what yeah. baseball is all about. And, and, and I and think. That's what I, and that's what our country is all about. Exactly. Exactly. It, this story is so steep in the American spirit. It's everything that we pride ourselves about being American. And, and so even though it was America that was trying to prevent them from sharing in the joys of her so-called national pastime, it was the American spirit that allowed them to persevere and prevail. And, and that's the story that comes out again in such triumphant fashion here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Now, exactly. Once again, this is John Pielli. I'm here with Bob Kendrick. Now, Bob, when, uh, you know, obviously after Jackie Robinson breaks the color barrier in 1947 and all of a sudden, you know, a lot of African-American players start joining teams. Um, you know, it, I guess it's kind of bittersweet in a way because it also is, you know, kind of leads to the beginning of the end of the Negro yeah. Leagues. And, of course, you know, it was the early part of the 1960s when, you know, the last league finally folded. Uh, what, what about that perspective as far as the history that it's had? And, yes, uh, you know, African-American players should have been part of Major League Baseball the entire history. There should be no excuse for it. But the, the fact, you know, the fact that, you know, it's changed. All of a sudden, they're accepted at this point. Is it a little bittersweet, the fact that it ends up leading to the end of the, the Negro Leagues? Of course. It, it absolutely is. I think your summarization of it is, is very um, poetic in, in many ways, and, and that's something that we refer to here all the time. And, and again, as I try to help our visitors understand exactly what you're talking about, there is always a cost for progress. Yes. And in this case, black businesses and the Negro Leagues in general paid a great cost for what was the progress because Robinson's breaking of the color barrier signaled an unprecedented change in our society, a change for the better. But it had a ripple effect in many ways, and all of them weren't positive effects because it destroyed, or as you mentioned, it was the beginning of the end of the Negro Leagues because really now at this point there were no need for two separate leagues, even though the Negro Leagues were employing a lot of baseball players, it was employing baseball personnel, you know, so the folks who were working in the business of baseball really didn't get that opportunity to transition over into Major League Baseball as those who were playing, and it literally put that older baseball player out of business. He would have to move to Canada or back to Latin America if they were going to keep playing baseball. And, and so it really did, you know, from that standpoint, it, it it hurt to some degree. And so you're right, it is a bittersweet scenario, but it moved our country in ways in which we never thought no, it was only possible. You know, and so, so morally and socially, it was an incredible undertaking 
Uh, but from a business perspective, it was devastating to lose the Negro League. Yeah, and I'll tell you, you add to it the fact that, you know, once there's so many African-American players in the major leagues, a lot of the fans that were going out there to support, you know, the Negro Leagues, going out there watching the games, are all of a sudden going to major league games when they, were, when they weren't before. Because as you can well imagine, everybody's fascinated by this. Yes. So they wanted to see how their great black stars were going to fare now that they were playing alongside with and against their, their white counterparts. And, and so you can understand, you know, that fan base now moving over to Major League Baseball. And, and so, yeah, the Negro League lost its fan base. Uh, and those older players, you know, once, once the owners saw the handwriting on the wall, you know, with Robinson breaking out a color barrier, the owners saw that the business of black baseball was going to evolve. And so they started selling their star players to the major leagues, trying to get as much money as they possibly could before their business of baseball, you know, ended. And so it just put that older player almost in an immediate quandary. It really hurt black baseball on the East Coast. Uh, here in the Midwest, they were able to survive a little bit longer because you didn't have that many major league teams in this area. So you only had Chicago and St. Louis at that time. And so those other teams were able to kind of hang on and survive, but everybody saw you know, ultimately what was gonna be the demise of the Negro Leagues. And so black owners uh, or Negro League owners started to try and just maximize and get whatever they could out of this before that business, you know, went completely dead. Yeah, no question about it. I mean, you look at it, it definitely is a business. And, you know, no matter no matter how great the product on the field is, if it's if it's not generating the revenue you expect, I mean, you can't have a business operate that way. Exactly. Hey, Bob, let me just ask you, how did how did you end up uh, becoming involved in a, in a Negro League museum? <laughs> Man, I started as a volunteer in 1993 okay. and uh, have been involved with the project almost from its inception. As you mentioned, the museum was formed in 1990. I started as a volunteer in 1993 when I was working for the Kansas City Star, the daily newspaper here in Kansas City. And I drew the assignment. I was working in the Star's promotions department, which functioned as its in-house advertising agency and so I drew the assignment of promoting uh, the museum's first traveling exhibition and it was in a little storefront space here at Historic 18th Divine in Kansas City uh, across the street now from where the museum currently operates and we had some success over 10,000 people came to see that exhibit during the month of August of 1993 and that prompted officials here to ask me if I would join their board uh, in a volunteer capacity and I was doing a lot of the marketing things for the museum as a volunteer. In 1998, I became the museum's first director of marketing, served in that capacity for, oh God, I guess 12 years. Left briefly in 2010 to take on a new role, and then in April of 2011, came back to become the museum's president. So this has been a project that has been near and dear to my heart for a long, long time. But it all began as a volunteer. Man, I tell you, man, uh, you got you got to keep getting the word out there. And like I said, you know, anybody anybody that supports it, which a lot of us do, uh, you know, we want to make sure that most most people, if not everybody, knows about the history of the Negro yeah. Leagues, which I think is something that yeah. you know, in regards to baseball history, I think it's still something that not enough people know about. Well, I, I think you're right, and, and I, certainly that is our job is to kind of make 
as many people as we possibly can aware of this piece of, of great history. You know, whether you're a baseball fan or not, uh, I think you're going to be enamored by this story. It is a all-encompassing history lesson, so to speak, that is built around the premise of baseball. Uh, but what transcends from this story certainly supersedes baseball. You know, uh, I mean, we're talking now about the social advancement of our country. We're talking about themes that relate to economic empowerment, leadership, all these things that come from the story of, of the Negro Leagues. And to be honest, John, I don't think there was ever a time that people didn't want to know about the Negro Leagues. They just simply had no way to know about the Negro Leagues because, again, the historians basically cheated us uh, because they excluded this wonderful piece of history from the pages of American history books. And, and so you just really had no way to learn about this history until the museum started to evolve. And, and so now we're creating a platform where everyone, if they so choose to, can have an opportunity to learn about this history. Yeah, and I tell you one one last thing I want to hit up because you you just you just got it right right into my brain there, the the statistics obviously you know you mentioned that a lot of them you know a lot of them were lost a lot of them weren't recorded, um, you know I'm the kind of guy I study stats like you know there's there's no tomorrow but uh, but I also understand <laughs> that when I'm looking at stats from players that played in the Negro leagues that there were there yeah. was a, there was a lot of stuff that was missing, is there yeah. how much of a hope exists that the rest of that information, or at least a, a better majority of it, can be found? Well, you know, we, we have great hope because, first and foremost, this, this wonderful pool of Negro League historians and researchers have done a wonderful job yes. over the last two decades or so of going through and compiling uh, reputable numbers associated with the Negro League. But, you know, you have to keep in mind that if they weren't playing in a town that had black press, there was really no one there to document these stories. So, you know, they oftentimes had school books and these kinds of things, but, you know, those things have been lost to time. And, uh, you know, we would love if, we, if they surfaced and we had access to them. I mean, they would be great pieces to have. But, you know, what we try to help people understand is that the record keeping is there in place. The recording of these things from a press standpoint weren't necessarily there in place because, again, if they weren't playing in a town that had black press, uh, they were virtually ignored. Every now and then you might see a little blurb in some of these newspapers, but, you know, uh, for the most part, this team of Negro League historians and researchers have really done a great job going back. Uh, through both oral histories as well as digging up old box scores and finding old Negro League uh, stuff that documents some of these games to, to help cre recreate or create, uh, I think, formidable statistical data on these players. Now, you're always going to get some, some dispute that Josh Gibson hit you know, 800 home runs, and he hit 900 home runs, you know, you're always going to get that. Because, man, they might play a game. The late, great Buck O'Neill would tell me, he says, Bob, we would head to St. Louis to go play the St. Louis Stars. We might play four games, you know, uh, if they were traveling with the Chicago American Giants. They might play four games before they got to St. Louis and then play a Sunday doubleheader in St. Louis or something of that nature. And so some of those games were really never even recorded. Uh, so, yeah, it does make it a little sketchy. And, and baseball is a wonderful game of comparison and statistics. And so the statistical data is really important. But, you know, the, the lore and legend surrounding these great athletes is, is what makes this thing, I think, so 
also oftentimes very romanticized. There's something very yeah. romantic about the Negro Leagues. And, and, and again, and I think it has grabbed the hearts and the imaginations of a lot of people. We hope it will continue to do so. Yeah, no question about it. Listen, Bob, a lot of great information there. And, you know, obviously, if you haven't got a chance to check it out, it's over in Kansas City. What's what's the address over there? So, you know, we could, we could get some people out there. 1616 East 18th Street, right in the heart of Kansas City's historic and 18 historic 18th and Vine Jazz District. We also share a complex with the American Jazz Museum, yeah. and so you have two very unique slices of culture under one roof: baseball and jazz. But those two things went hand in hand, particularly here in Kansas City. And so it only really made sense that you have these two unique. Uh, cultural institutions combined uh, for one experience. You can see them both separately, or you can get a combination ticket to see both of them. So, uh, but it's right in the heart of Kansas City's historic 18th and 9th Jazz District, where it all happened. You know, when you come here, you walk in the same streets that Satchel Paige and Cool Papa Bell and Josh Gibson and Dizzy Gillespie and Lionel Hampton and Sarah Vaughn. They all walk these same streets. Uh, and so, you know, you are literally taking a journey back in time to a very rich and vibrant history of baseball and jazz. No, absolutely, man. I tell you, I love, I love your enthusiasm and your passion. You could tell you, you could tell you really love what you do. And I tell you, you know, like, like I said before, I mean, you know, from, from the historians and everybody involved with it, you know, it's a phenomenal job bringing back a part, a part of baseball history that, that, you know, really, really deserves its representation and its credit and, you know, for, for what it's done for this game. Well, you know, I think, John, for all of us who are involved with the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, from our volunteer board of directors to the seven of us who will make up the staff of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, this is a labor of love. And, and I think we all understand that if we are successful in doing what we're supposed to do, and that is to create a long-term, sustainable future for the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, in our own unique ways, we will leave a legacy. And, and you know, that's something that we all look and embrace uh, very fondly. And, and so we're all stepping up to try and meet a, a difficult challenge. And, Keeping cultural institutions alive is not the easiest thing in the world. Uh, cultural institutions are suffering all over our country, but you know we're all stepping up to meet this challenge to make sure that the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum is here for future generations to have an opportunity to not only come in and learn a piece of history that is not right now part of the history book, but I think to be inspired by the passion, by the pride, the perseverance, the courage that was really demonstrated by these men and women who just simply wanted to play ball. Yeah, no question about it. Listen, Bob, I want to thank you for your time. And, you know, I'd love to get you on the show sometime in the future, man, because, yeah, there's so many other things that I'd like to talk about. I could be on, the, I could be on here with you for <laughs> a couple hours because there's so many different things you could break down, you know, the great history of the Negro Leagues. And, of course, check it out in Kansas City, the Negro Leagues Museum, and, of course, its president, Bob Kendrick. So thanks a lot, man, for your time. And, you know, we'll definitely be in touch and hopefully we'll speak to you again in the near future. Well, John, I appreciate the opportunity and certainly look forward uh, to being on the show anytime that you'd like to have me. Great, great interview there with Bob Kendrick. And I tell you, you know, you know, really, really nice guy. And I tell you, I, I'm going to be I'm going to make sure I have him on the program again sometime in the near future because there's so many different things that I didn't even get a chance to touch on. But listen, we're going to take a break here. Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Hope you guys enjoyed everything so far. Uh, we'll finish right up the first hour with a lot of baseball talk. So back after this.
This is Lady E, one of the many broadcasters at MTR Radio. If you're listening to MTRRadio.com, fantastic. Qué bueno. But if you want to take us with you, we have an app for your smartphone that lets you listen to us 24-7. Just go to Google Play on your Android device or the iPhone App Store and download our app, MTR Radio. Welcome back, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Of course, a reminder, tweet at me, at John underscore Pielli, and I'll continue to reply to everybody's message, everything that everybody has to say, um, even if it's, you know, an FU or whatever. Um, I'll, I'll be sure to say thank you. But going on in the world of Major League Baseball, you got the Phillies struggling, you got the Yankees struggling, you got the Mets not doing very well this season, but there's been a little more inspirational play of lately. And I'm not going to get into this discussion about thinking that the Mets are in a better position. But right now, uh, listen, there is some hope that maybe over the next couple seasons, this team could be a little more competitive. You're seeing some things happening now. And listen, there's been some better moments. They've been able to take series from teams like the Braves and the Phillies, something that was not really possible before. The Nationals still got their number. You could still make the case that the Braves and the Phillies and the Marlins, of course, have their number. But, you know, if the Mets are going to turn the corner, they're going to have to play better play within their own division something that they have not proven to uh, really get the opportunity to do but let's get into a couple different things in regards to the Mets you got the you got uh, the play right now of a guy like Josh Satin and Josh Satin has had a chance to, to get an opportunity to really play in the major leagues for the first time and you, you look at him and I don't obviously don't think that he is the answer I don't think that he is a guy that you could absolutely look at and say that he is uh, the real deal an everyday player but Listen, let's be honest. Look at a guy like Nick Evans a couple years ago. And Nick Evans uh, was obviously up and down with the Mets on the 40-man roster, off the 40-man roster, in a situation where he was only going to be used in, uh, you know, for little bits and spurts. And when it was time for him to go, they took him off the roster. And Josh Satin was a September call-up in 2011. He got 25 at-bats, went 5 for 25. Yet you really didn't get a determination either here or there whether or not he got the job done or was a good player. But was taken off the 40-man roster for the 2012 season. The Mets, you know, a simple roster casualty. Uh, Only got one at-bat and a brief little cup of coffee with the Mets. And this past year was playing very well in AAA Las Vegas. Got a chance to come up with, obviously, the the, uh, the injuries that they've they've had with a guy like Lucas Duda going down. Uh, Obviously, prior to that was up because Ike Davis was sent down to AAA. And the Mets' first goal or first really uh, chance they gave to Daniel Murphy at first base with Jordani Valdez been playing second. Valdez been struggled. They moved Lucas Duda over there. Lucas 
this dude that got hurt. So now the Mets were almost forced to put Josh Satin in action and Terry Collins, uh, you know, was probably just like, hey, let's see what the guy's got. Well, to the point of this broadcast, he is 15 for 38, five RBIs, 395 average, more walks than strikeouts. You always knew that this guy could hit, but the questions obviously still will exist as far as the ability or the thoughts of him being an everyday player. And I'm not ready to buy into it. I don't think that he absolutely is. But I think he's a guy that may warrant a little more consideration for the big league club as we go down the road. Maybe he becomes a platoon player. The fact that he bats right-handed, maybe if uh, you know Ike Davis could come back, maybe you do it a little more guarded with the thought that he could use Satin to play against left-handers. But a guy that, yes, has a few little uh, quirks in his swing, a little kinks in his swing that maybe not uh, totally uh, make him good in regards to the traditional baseball guy that follows swings and hitting and stuff like that but listen I mean you give the guy a little credit he's done a good job he's gone out there he's played he's played very well I mean he's obviously not a guy that's going to be known for defense he's not going to be able to uh, go out there and do what Ike Davis can do defensively but at the same time you got to give him credit for um, what what he has done offensively I mean he's shown that he's a singles doubles type of hitter a guy that may not hit a lot of home runs, but he goes out there and certainly uh, has proven that he could hit at the major league level to this point. And I find that interesting. I, I mean, the Mets, a team that obviously are parading players in to, to just see what they can get out of players. Uh, and I, I think, you know, you shouldn't hold it against a guy like Josh Satin. I mean, I'm not gonna, obviously not going to put him in a category where he doesn't belong, but he's a guy that deserves a chance. I mean, maybe not a full chance to be a total major league player, but in regards to that, you look at what's going on in Binghamton with Cesar Puelo, and Cesar Puelo, of course, you know him being the guy that's may or may not be linked and hooked into this biogenesis thing going on in Florida. Every team's got a player, obviously, and for the Mets, it's Cesar Puelo, but whatever Cesar Puelo is doing this year, he's tearing the cover off the ball for AA Binghamton. 336 average, 401 on base percentage, 612 slugging percentage, a 1.013 OPS. He has been great up there. He certainly deserves the opportunity to take the next step and go up to AAA and eventually at age 22 get to the major leagues. And let's be honest, the Mets outfield, yes, you've gotten better production you know, from guys like Marlon Byrd and Eric Young Jr. and you know whoever they decide to throw in there and play left field for them or center field, whether it's Ligaris, whether it's a Kirk Newman Heist. You got to feel a little better about the Mets outfield than you did at the start of the season. But moving forward, I don't think there's any reason that Cesar Puello shouldn't be up here playing for for the major league team. Is he an option? Is he a guy that maybe a lot of guys in the Mets organization absolutely love? Probably not. But let's be honest. I mean, if you could run Jordani Valdespin out there and give him a chance to play, which, you know, he may or may not have been given a chance to play, but he's, he's up at the major league level. I think the same you could say about Cesar Puello. And let the whole biogenesis thing go out. If he runs out there, he has a month in the major leagues where he hits about 330, shows some power, and then gets busted for PEDs. Uh, there's nothing you could do about that. The bottom line is the guy is on the, on the 40-man roster. He's in the organization. And, listen, deserves a chance to be thrown out there. You talk about uh, potential trades the Mets may do as far as uh, trying to build for the future. A guy that has certainly built up a little bit of value is Marlon Byrd and I wouldn't be against keeping Marlon Bird. I'm not absolutely hell-bent on having to trade him for something because, you know, you've heard me before about the stupid trades for prospects. Let's just get something back. I know it's all bullshit because, you know, all you guys are thinking about is just getting a bunch of uh, young guys that are 22, 23 years old. You don't even care how they are. You just want to see a name go for somebody. And, you know, before I get all angry about it, I just want to – 
you know, get into, listen, if you do trade Marlon Bird, uh, Cesar Puello is a guy that you could play and kind of see what you get. And, uh, you know, I, I think he should be up here, you know, maybe by August or September. You know, remember, you don't have to make a 40-man roster move. I think it would be wise to see the Mets do that. But, listen, I want to thank you guys for being part of the program here in the first hour. Lots more stuff to get into. Brooks Kieschnick coming up and a lot of different baseball topics. So, once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. We're going to break for five minutes and be back with a whole nother hour. So stay tuned.